This is Cup of Go for March 6th, 2023. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in just 15 minutes per week. I'm your co-host, Shai Nechmad. And I'm your other co-host, Jonathan Hall. Welcome back, Shai. It's been a while. We missed you last week. Well, I know I did. I think the audience did, too. Uh, if they listen to your episode. If they listen to my episode, yeah. Sorry, guys, if you did. <laughs> yeah, but this week we have a ton of stuff to talk about. Uh, so we're going to jump into it. What's been happening? Do you want to kick us off with the, the new updates in the telemetry story we started uh, three weeks ago, I think? Yeah, so for people who missed the previous episodes, uh, here's the short of what happened. Here's the summary. The Go team, uh, specifically Russ, suggested adding telemetry into the Go toolchain. So when you run, for example, Go build, it might send some telemetry to a server, letting the Go team know you've ran Go build and some anonymous metadata. On the surface, this is great for everyone. The Go developers are helping the Go team, you know, letting them know what they're using, and the Go team will subsequently improve the tooling. However, there were quite a few comments from the community about this. We reviewed some of them, but people didn't like it. The general why, you know, we discussed some points. I think, Jonathan, some people are a blanket statement just against this. They didn't want anything sent. But there was one main sentiment there, right? Yeah, I, I think most people, well, I don't know if most people, a vocal subset of people were really opposed to the idea of opt out as opposed to opt in. They think the default should be off. Yeah, so the suggestion very explicitly said that it's going to be opt out, which means whenever you install Go, unless you go to a place and do a config, it's going to send telemetry by default. There was a lot of community backlash about this uh, proposal. I think when we covered it, it was like 500 comments in a GitHub issue in like two days. So Russ locked it. Uh, the Go team went back to do their homework, and they actually came back with a change. They're now trying to roll it out with opt-in, which I think makes this a no-brainer. The transparent telemetry is obviously useful for open source projects, especially for a project that's lively as Go. Making it opt-in just makes it great for everyone. There are some costs incurred with this. When you do an installation, there's going to be two different buttons with two choices. There's no default. You can't just install it anymore. They'll have to campaign it using the surveys and blog posts and... Uh, whenever you run uh, Go in VS Code, it's going to tell you, hey, please opt in for telemetry. And they'll probably think of other ways as well since they, you know, they're going to want to make these numbers go bigger. What do you think about the change, Jonathan? Honestly, I think opt out makes more sense from a scientific standpoint, uh, obviously. But the privacy concerns and you know, the, the general distrust of Google, I suppose, make that, uh, I think, fairly obviously untenable. So I think opt-in is the next best option, and uh, I support it. I mean, I, I think I will opt-in. Uh, I would definitely opt-in both uh, at, at home and in work. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with the telemetry proposal itself. And, you know, I could set up a review once every whatever to see if the telemetry got too invasive. Yeah, yeah. Or, or just listen to this podcast, and if they ever change the telemetry, we'll try to report it here. So that's the telemetry thing. What else has been going on? Let's talk about some proposals. We have a little bit of proposal news this week. The first one that I'll talk about is a proposal to add uh, the, the ability to do full duplex in the net HTTP package. And this is going to be a kind of an archaic thing. Most people won't ever care about this. But uh, as it stands right now, you can't 
start writing your response until you've read all the headers is, is the basic gist of it right now. So this will make it possible to start sending a response before you've even read all the headers. Uh, and it will be doing this by adding an enable full duplex method on the response controller type in the net HTTP package. And that response controller type, if you're not familiar with it, is actually new. It came out in Go 1.20, which is why you probably haven't heard of it before unless you're intimately familiar with net HTTP. Yeah, coming up to standards and allowing people more flexibility makes a lot of sense. If you're writing streaming applications or doing big data or whatever, this proposal might be relevant to you, so check it out. Exactly. Right now it's accepted but not developed yet, right? So we might expect to see that in uh, one twenty one. Perhaps, yes. Another proposal that is likely to be accepted is the one about structured logging. Uh, we talked about that one in this one in the past. Uh, basically, when you log just lines of text, you're uh, losing a lot of what you actually want to do with logging, which is search, group, do some analytics, whatever. Uh, I think the industry in general sort of moved towards structured logging when instead of writing a line of text, you write a, a JSON message. Mm -hmm. And then you have like the message field, which is the text you actually want to look at. But you also have other fields like the file, the line, the component, error, whatever. Um, this is very useful. And, you know, all the platforms supported Datadog, ground cover, elastic, whatever. The issue is in last call for comments, which is your last chance to sort of drop in your two cents on what you'd like to make it into the standard library. Let's talk about BadgerDB. BadgerDB just released version 4.0.0. And immediately afterwards, they released 4.0.1 because of a release problem. So BadgerDB, if you're not familiar, is an embeddable, persistent, and fast key value database written in pure Go. No CGO installed or anything like that. I've seen it used in a few projects. I've never used it myself, and it seems to be a popular choice if you need a pure Go uh, database, you know, something sort of lightweight. This is a great option. Uh, it's, it's lighter weight than, say, using Redis or something like that. So version 4 of BadgerDB is out. It's not really a major change. Uh, basically, they're adopting Semver and did a bunch of housekeeping, dependency updates, things like that. But it's still a great project to check out. So check out BadgerDB. Uh, another interesting release, uh, if you're working with uh, graphs, the graph data structure, like vertices, nodes, whatever, if you're actually working with it, or maybe if you're a student and you're learning data structures, there's a library called Graph, um, which I really like. It's a very Go thing where they um, implemented everything you need for, for graphs visualization and the algorithms you'd expect, finding paths, uh, transformations, DFS, BFS, etc. And now they also have, this is the latest release from four days ago, uh, 0.16. They have support for any storage backend, which for me turns this project from a toy project, which you can use maybe for a POC or an algorithm or whatever, like in a very limited space of, of problems to something with a lot of more applicability. Because when you can integrate your own storage backend, you can actually put a, a real GraphDB behind it or S3 or RDS or whatever you know uh, size of storage you need. And you have a lot more flexibility. So I was really happy to see that addition. And I'm actually ho hoping to try out uh, Graph soon at work, where we work a lot with graphs. Um, today, we're only doing it in Python, and I'm hoping to dethrone the data scientists and, and stop using <laughs> Python as much as I can. Um, there are two other interesting releases uh, this week. The one that popped out to me as, as 
out of nowhere and very, very fresh was Service Weaver by Google. Yeah. Jonathan, what is Service Weaver? The saddest thing about this release was the name. I think this totally should have been called Transformers Microservices in Disguise. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, it's still early. Maybe we can do... <laughs> Maybe we can get them to rename it. <laughs> uh, but the basic concept is you you write your code as a modular monolith but deploy it as microservices monolith what year is this yeah what are you talking about so you write your your code more or less the same way you would as though it were a monolith but then you can define in a essentially a yaml file where sort of your breakpoints are where 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 the the boundaries are between the microservices and you can deploy uh your your code as microservices but it looks like a monolith and and i guess the biggest advantage to this is that you can compile it as a monolith for, say, local development, but then when you deploy it to the cloud, you could have it be you know, sort of sharded into 20 different microservices and, and have n number of instances of each one depending on what load you need in production without having to, say, run Docker Swarm locally or Docker Compose or, or Kubernetes on your laptop or whatever you might need to do otherwise to have a meaningful local system. I, I thought it was interesting seeing you know, such a project come from uh, Google, who also do Kubernetes, and also it's the oh, it's the classic uh, Google thing of uh, right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, but both of them are finishing projects, so they're getting promoted to L five instead of L four <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, but I think it's an interesting argument. Like a lot of the people I talk to are saying, like we do Kubernetes because everybody's doing Kubernetes, and all the tech is there. Seeing an alternative that reminds me of the good old days of just developing, you know. C sharp 2.0 with DLLs for plugins uh, or whatever is is a nice uh, change. It is 0.1. It does look a bit young. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if I would build a, a super production stack over it, but it might be good for some POCs. Maybe joining the project early if this is answering exactly. Uh, your needs. They do have quite extensive documentation, so I, I I encourage you to at least read it if you're working on a distributed system, just to you know uh, get a breath of uh, fresh air and see uh, how they're doing configuration and how they're defining the interfaces. And running up the releases is uh, Conk by Sourcegraph, which we mentioned in the past had a huge release, a ton of stars, um, and as we mentioned, it's still pre 1.0, so it has breaking changes. So here are some breaking changes, which is unfortunate for anyone who already dumped all the production code into it, uh, but great for uh, everyone who's still experimenting. They fixed some temporal couplings, which I really like. Uh, temporal coupling, if you don't know, is uh, when you have a coupling in software, something ha- is coupled to another thing. Instead of it being structural, you know, A inherits B or A implements B or A uh, composes B or whatever, it's A ha- has to happen before B. Uh, so one thing that Kong had is a temporal coupling where you could configure a thread pool, start using it, and then configure it again. It's just undefined behavior. So they went with the extreme route of just saying, if you configure it after you use it, it's going to panic, uh, which is obviously a breaking change if you did it in your code and you're suddenly going to start getting panics. Also, a lot of related changes to this. And finally, support for Go120 multi-errors, which is super relevant if you're working with multi-threading or you know multiple go routines going to have a bunch of go routines you're going to want to return a list of errors so they did a really interesting thing where if you use go 120 you get the newly released 
standard library multi-error implementation, which we discussed previously on the show before. But if you use uh, earlier version of Go, they just go with the multi-error package from Uber, which is a good one to pick out of the, I don't know, 15 uh, <laughs> available ones. Uh, what's happening in the world of conferences? Yeah, a new conference came to my uh, onto my radar recently. Uh, I can't really read the website because it's written in Chinese, but Google Translate tells me that Gopher China 2023 is coming up June 9 through 11. It will be held in Beijing. So if you are in that area and speak Chinese, presumably, uh, this could be a great conference for you to attend. They've been doing this conference since 2015. So kudos to the Chinese Gopher community for running a great conference for so long. Do you know if we have any listeners in you know who speak Chinese? You know what? I can check the analytics to at least see if we have people listening from China. According to the analytics, we have eight downloads in China. So you don't say. <laughs> Let's well, get more than that. We need more than eight. I hope. I hope uh, <laughs> some of y'all are gonna uh, be at the conference. And running out the the news, we found something interesting in the uh, Go. I wouldn't say even community, but it is interesting. Uh, about Go was released this week by O'Reilly. So O'Reilly, they do uh, content and training, and you probably know them from the books with the animals drawn in a pencil on the front. Mm-hmm. So they published an article called Tech Trends for 2023, where they analyze some of their data. They have quite a lot of it about what people are searching, what people are learning. From that, they try to determine what are the technology trends for 2023. One thing they posted was specifically about Go. If you look at Go and Golang together, uh, it's number five uh, in their search terms, uh, which is pretty high up there. It's just behind machine learning, Python, Java, and also 20% gain from 2021 to 2022. You know, Jonathan, what do you think? Is this good news if you're a Go developer? Is this bad news if you're a Go developer? Well, that's a good that's a good question. What I think it means is that more people are learning Go, which could be seen as a bad thing in a sense because there's going to be more competition for the Go jobs out there. But I think we already know that the, there are more Go jobs than there are Go developers. There's more openings that are hard to fill. So uh, I don't really think we need to worry about that. Um, I think having more Go developers is generally a good thing. It means we'll have more people testing our libraries and finding security vulnerabilities and building cool things. And so, yeah, the more people we have using Go, the the stronger Go will be. So I'm, I'm all for it. All right, so this makes it up for this week's news. Join us after the ad break to listen about some behind-the-scenes stuff about making podcasts. This last week, uh, Joe Davidson reached out to me and pointed me to one of his open-source projects called XC, which we're going to plug today. XC is a simple, convenient, markdown-defined task runner. It's designed to maximize convenience and minimize complexity. Each XC task is defined in a simple human-readable markdown, meaning that for people without the XC tool install, there's a clear source of useful commands in the readme.md file. So let's say we have a task that we do every week where we upload an episode. We're going to talk about it after the break. It's not a command line uh, task right now, but it might be. Then documenting it so I could do it, you know, if Jonathan is out or the other way around like it happened last week could be useful. But then, you know, the documentation and, and the actual commands they diverge over time. I think with uh, XC is is uh, another tool that exemplifies unifying do- documentation and code or documentation as code. Choosing Markdown as the XC 
um, you know, format, I, th- I think, is a really, really nice decision by, uh, by Joe. Check out xcfile.dev for the documentation or github.com slash joerdav slash xc. And of course, those links are in the show notes. So today we're going to interview Jonathan. For those of you who don't know, when we uh, decided to start this podcast, I didn't know anything about uh, podcasts or content creation online in general. And Jonathan just posted a message in the Rand Slack and was like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing. Who wants to join? Um, And I jumped on the bandwagon. I assumed I'm going to have to learn how to do podcasting, how to do publishing, how to do everything. But Jonathan ended up taking care of almost everything. I only did the logo and the soundtrack. So today we want to dive in into how to do that. So first of all, how do you start a podcast? How do you start a podcast? Um, well, the first thing you need is an idea. And of course, the idea for this podcast was to scratch my own itch because I wanted to be able to keep up with the Go community without having to aggregate 20 different websites personally. So the solution was to, of course, aggregate 20 websites personally and then turn it into a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh so the idea is the first thing um and then uh, you know i might not can walk through sort of the, the the process of publishing um in 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 all that uh i use transistor.fm although there are many other podcast hosting co- uh, sites and, and companies out there you can host it yourself too uh, a podcast is basically a collection of audio files usually mp3 but they could be other formats and an xml file describing them for your your subscribers and then uh so there's different companies that do that for you or you can do it yourself there's wordpress plugins that do it if you want um i didn't want to mess with that level of detail so i just pay transistor.fm something like i don't remember 20 dollars a month or something like that to host my my podcast here just walking through the process um we record an episode we we're using for that uh i have an account on riverside.fm these.fm TLDs are popular for podcasting, I guess. Riverside records our audio and video. If we were publishing to YouTube, we could use that, but we don't. So we just record the the audio. And then I edit it in Audacity, open source tool that most listeners probably have heard of at least. Uh, Do my editing there, cut out all the ums and the mistakes and the when we talk over each other and anything like that that happens. All the fighting and the swearing. Yeah, yeah. That part, yeah, we, we sound friendly in the edited version, but uh, we really hate each other uh, behind the scenes. So, <laughs> so I don't know if this is going to make it into the edited version, though. So. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, yeah, I upload an MP3 file to Transistor.fm. I type in some show notes with links to all the little bits we talked about, all the news items, and that's kind of how that works on the back end. Uh, that, that usually takes me about a half a day, although I'm getting faster uh, to do the editing myself. Yeah. What, what else can I answer about that? For those of you who don't know uh, among our listeners, Jonathan is uh, a content creation machine. He has uh, newsletters. He has a YouTube channel. He has previous podcasts and this one. So I guess my question is, what is different for you in the experience of working up on Cup of Go than, let's say, uh, Tiny DevOps or in your newsletter? Yeah. Uh, so one of my goals with Cup of Go was to make it as simple to produce as possible. Uh, and that's because I know about my own motivation. Uh, when it's complicated, I lose motivation. 
uh tiny devops uh my old podcast which is no longer being produced um but it's still online uh i i made more complicated than necessary probably uh i did it as a podcast i did it on youtube and i transcribed all of the uh the interviews uh, I, I submitted the audio files to a transcription service and they would transcribe it so i have the transcriptions online uh, in their full format so that's a lot of work and, and expense that i didn't want to do for this podcast uh, so the the decision not to use video uh, was part of that. The decision to use uh, a short format helped with that, although that's also part of my, my itch scratching is I wanted a, a short, concise place to find the news. Um, video editing is just a lot more involved than audio editing. Uh, so I don't even do my own YouTube editing anymore. I did for the first year or so, but I now ha hire an editor to do the, the video editing for me. Um, and I'm on one of the podcasts, too, called Adventures in DevOps. Uh, I don't produce that one. I'm just a host. Uh, it's it's more professionally produced. Uh, and so that one's actually the simplest one because I just have to show up once a week and jabber for an hour, and, and then it's done. Someone else handles everything else for me. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. It's, it's a pretty good feeling. <laughs> and other than the technical aspects of what's been different about CupAgo for you, there's also the community aspect, right? A lot of people yeah. uh, reaching out to us. And, and you know, you and I didn't know each other before. We're from different countries, different cultures, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So how's that aspect been different than, you know, a single show that you do yourself or the other podcasts you've uh, co-hosted? Right. So so uh, I'll, I'm going to answer that in two different ways. Um, first off, when I started doing Tiny DevOps, I was very intentional that my, my goal with Tiny DevOps was to sort of build a personal brand. Um that's not my goal here. I mean, I, I suppose it's happening, but that's not my, my primary goal. My goal here is to provide a valuable service to the community. And, and I've been surprised in a good way at how the community has responded. I've been very pleasantly surprised at the number of downloads we've had. I I remember that for the first episode, I was I was hoping we would maybe get 100 downloads, and we had over 800 for the first episode. And it's dropped off a little bit since then, which is, I think, expected. The first one has a little bit of hype around it. Um so that that was really exciting, just to see how many downloads we had for the first episode, uh, and then the the request to have a, a Slack channel was great. I don't, I don't I didn't even think of that beforehand, but it's an obvious sort of addition to the uh, the podcast. So the fact that we have a Slack channel that people are coming to and and submitting news reports and 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 suggestions for the, uh, open source projects they're working on that's great, and that's a sort of feedback I haven't gotten from any of the other. Uh, content creation I've done, whether it's posting blogs or my YouTube channel or anything like that. So um, that, that's been really nice and, and, and it feels good. Yeah, I think this is a good chance to uh, replug the Slack channel. If that sounds like a place you want to go to, go for Slack and the channel is hashtag cup of go uh, with hyphens. So kebab case. Yeah, we'd love to have anybody come by and, and let us know you're listening. Let's talk about how we get the topics we talk about in the show and how we sort of uh, manage that. So at first, we started with the simplest way possible, right? There was a, a document. It was called Go Podcast Idea Whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we started tacking to the bottom a bunch of ideas. Uh, but we upgraded since then. So what changed and, and do you think it's for the better? Yeah, so now we're using Trello, which is definitely a lot more manageable than a Google Doc. Um, and we have various uh, columns. Uh, so that the, the one that gets the most attention is news since that's sort of the topic of the show and both of us throughout the week uh, as we see new uh news items pop up we put them in there i have a few places i check every week 
um, for news and others that I, you know, just try to keep my feelers out open. Uh, the, the, the obvious one is the Golang Announce uh, Google group. Um, that's where the official announcements for Go releases happen. And of course, we started this podcast right as Go 1.20 was about to release. So that was pretty busy for a little while. Um, it, it's not busy most of the time. Basically, official releases and security patches are all that's announced there. The other big place I watch is the proposal review meeting minutes GitHub issue uh, on the Go GitHub page, which is where, where Russ Cox every week posts the minutes for the proposals meeting they have. Mentions everything that was accepted, declined, things that are likely to be accepted or declined uh, you know, in the next week or two. And then anything that's currently open and active and mentions uh, in that list, the things that were recently added. So I, I monitored that pretty closely. And that's where we get the news items about the things that have been recently accepted or denied. Or uh, it's, in this episode, it, we talked about S-log, the, the structured logging package. That came from there. Um, where else do I watch? I look at the Go blog, although that doesn't get a lot of updates. But when it does, it's usually valuable. Um, and I watch Golang News, uh, the the weekly newsletter uh, that they send out. Uh, they often point us to new things. And then I also frequently pop over to Reddit uh, on r slash Golang, or I start I have started starring a whole bunch of Go-related GitHub repositories uh, watching for releases. So there's a bunch of different places I look for news. I don't know. Maybe you could add if there's other places you look too. So one place I, I look at is uh, some Slack communities, not necessarily the Gopher one, um, but just some programming communities in general. Um, and also we do go at, at work. I, unlike Jonathan, work full-time as a software engineer. So uh, I have a bunch of Go developers around me and, you know, in preparation for every Go meetup uh, we, we go to see or whatever, or just our daily work, we we need to use the, the thing. So I try to keep the content I'm, I'm bringing to the show relevant to what I'm actually doing at work. Um, although recently it's been the other way around. Like I learn about interesting things for the show and then I bring them to work and they create value there, which for me uh, is really, really great. Nice. Also, other than managing the news topics, we also have uh, a list of interviewees we're trying to schedule with, and that obviously has a human element, right, of of setting up uh, the interview and actually doing it and ha making sure the other person is happy with how it uh, came out. So we have a, a long list of people who want to interview there, and uh, we're trying to set up, you know, interviews for the for the episodes there. That's that's a bit different from the news segment right it, it, trying it to achieve a different thing yeah and i have to say with my experience with tiny devops that's the hardest part of running a podcast is is scheduling interviews uh and it, especially one that's that's tied to the news i think it's even harder there's a there's an additional element there that you kind of want an interview that's relevant to the news uh if possible <laughs> with tiny devops for example i could have uh and sometimes i did record three or four interviews in a week and then just have a backlog of, of done interviews. And we could do that to some extent here, but it's hard to do uh, an, an, a news-relevant interview four weeks in advance. So one question that's interesting and I've heard quite often is who's our target audience, right? You mentioned the community at large, but the community includes, you know, the the person who started learning Go yesterday, and that's, I don't know, their first or second programming language, and like Bill Kennedy, 
So it's a, it's a pretty right. wide range of experiences uh, from our analytics. We also know it's from all over the world. We just talked about GopherCon China or, or yeah. whatever it was, Beijing. So what, who do you envision as the target audience? That's a good question. So I, I guess my target audience is, I mean, obviously people who use Go or, or are interested in Go. But I want the podcast to be accessible to people who just learned about Go yesterday. So I, you know, I don't think you need to have six years of experience programming in Go and know everything about concurrency, blah blah blah, to to get something out of the podcast. I hope, I hope that part of my goal with this podcast and even my my channel, Boldly Go on YouTube, is to make Go more accessible to people. Uh, that, that's one thing I love about Go in the first place is that it's a fairly simple language to to pick up. The syntax is simple, but I think that a lot of newcomers to Go feel kind of intimidated by the proposal process and by the standard. You know, reading the standard library might seem like a foreign idea, or reading the the Go spec. So, I hope that we can make the news accessible to anybody. I, I want. I guess my goal would be if if newcomers to Go can listen to the podcast, and and feel like, oh, that's not such a big mystery anymore, the way proposals are done or the way releases are done or why that feature was added to the standard library, why, why telemetry is added in the way it was. You know, if we can help sort of remove the mystery around some of that stuff, that would be uh, perfect for me. Well, I hope we can achieve that and keep, you know, the experienced devs uh, interested and, and engaged as well. Uh, my closing question, uh, we discussed before the show, I think it was uh, off record, you know, you live in Amsterdam, so you bike a lot. I imagined you, you know, traveling around in, in a bike with, with flowers in the front and, and I don't know, <laughs> all the other uh, Dutch stereotypes with the wooden uh, clunky issues. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh, my clogs, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that what you do when you ride around on a bike is listen to podcasts. So what are some of your mm -hmm. favorite podcasts? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. So I listen to podcasts. Uh, I, I don't listen to a lot of technology podcasts, but I do some. Um, I could just pull up my podcast player here and remember the names and not mess them up. Oh, let's look. Let's look at the stats. So some of my favorite podcasts are Ditching Hourly by Jonathan Stark. It's a podcast for uh, independent uh, professionals who want to uh, basically raise their prices without raising their hourly rates. Um, Deep Questions by Cal Newport is a favorite. The No Nonsense Agile podcast is a favorite one of mine. It's uh, sort of about agile software development. They have great guests every week. So so mostly professional ones. Yeah. I do sometimes listen to uh, some NPR podcasts. Hidden Brain is one I like. Uh, it's about sort of human psychology. Uh, two more to my list. Uh, the Art of Manliness podcast is a good one. Uh, it's not mostly about manliness. I think women could get a lot from it too. And Revolutions, which is uh, a historical. It's uh, basically narrating history. I'm, re I'm listening to the season right now about medieval England. Wow, cool. So thanks a lot to our interviewee, Jonathan, who will be back next week uh, as the co-host. Yes. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs> thanks for the interview. Yeah, so this was a behind-the-scenes look into how we uh, do the podcast. A lot of people asked about it. We're going to do another section like this that's uh, about the theme song, the logo, and the rest of the assets in the future because people asked about it as well. We will be in your ears next week with some more Go news and updates. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at cupago.dev. Uh, you can leave a review in Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We will see you all next week.
Until then.